Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5. And our passage, this might be the shortest scripture reading ever in the history of Soma. Just one verse. So if you go to the New Testament, go to the, kind of the middle of your Bible, keep working your way to the right, or go all the way to the end and work your way to the left, you'll come across this letter written by the Apostle Paul. And we, last week, started a new series uh, as we are in this year of learning what it looks like to be wholehearted disciples of Jesus. We started a new series here in the book of Galatians, and we're going to be looking at the fruit of the Spirit together over the next several weeks through the end of May. So this is our passage, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, once said this, life cannot have any other purpose than joy and goodness. Only this purpose, joy, is ultimately worthy of life. Tolstoy wrote this at the end of a period of great despair in his own life. After going through kind of a a breakdown and a crisis of faith, he had what he called a great awakening. And these words are written out of the deep kind of anguish of that journey that actually led him to Christ. And as I was thinking about um, this topic of joy, I I could think of no better uh, way to kind of illustrate joy than to think about the joy that children have. I have four kids, which means I have lots of joy uh, in my or lots of potential for joy. I don't always like that joy because that joy often interrupts my reveling in despair. That's why children's shouts and their screams bother us because we like to be despairing. But children have this innate sense, unless there's severe trauma, unless something's not right developmentally, to be a child is to be full of just kind of this innate joy. And I want to just kind of start our time together um, remembering that. Because we, we forget and we, we block ourselves off from like our childhood. We grow up and we get sophisticated, smart, educated, enlightened. And it's easy for us to forget the wonder of just pure joy. And that's really what childhood is. It's a season of just simple joy. I mean, around my house, my kids can find joy in just laughing and jumping on the trampoline digging around in the dirt for bugs. And I mean, right, as a child, like you're, there's kind of that naive optimism, right? Like everything's experienced for the first time. It, it can be found in just hugging, tickling, having fun together, wrestling around. And I, I wanna just kind of like encourage you to start. We usually t- start with a time of reflection. Now, and I, and I realize that for some, that's not your childhood experience. And so I wanna kind of acknowledge that childhood was a time of pain. It was a time of hurt. It was a time of abuse, and I don't want to gloss over that. But I do want to invite you um, to think back to your childhood quickly, to call into your mind like a memory of just simple joy. I'm going to do a little Marie Kondo here. What sparked joy for you when you were a child? Maybe it was walking in the woods. I was recounting a time with my kids this week, or I used to just get into the creek with a bunch of other kids. This sounds weird now, but we would walk through not the cleanest water in the world. 
but just as an act of joy. Almost every day I spent in the creeks growing up in Kentucky. What sparked joy for you? Just, if you can, just take a moment and can you go back there? Like enter into what that felt like before you got all serious and educated and you got a job and you got all cynical, what we call adulthood now. Just think about that for a second. Feel that, smell it, taste it. Let's open up our time at just crying out to God. God, help us to recover joy. Just take a moment and breathe in the joy that God wants to give to you this morning. Breathe out your cares and anxieties. Let's take a moment of silence and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your life is one of fullness of joy. The psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy, a joy that's unimaginable, a joy that's inexpressible, but a joy that's real nonetheless. We experience that partially now with our broken cisterns and broken hearts and broken souls and broken minds and broken bodies and broken cultures God, to know you is to know joy. To know Jesus is to know joy. To know your spirit is to experience joy applied to our lives, the joy of Jesus, his salvation applied to our lives and lived out in in the midst of our world. So God, would you restore to us today the joy of our salvation? Maybe give to some of us today for the first time the gift of joy in salvation as we trust you, as we surrender to you, as we struggle to defy despair, would you help us to find joy in you and in this community that you've given us to? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the question I have for you this morning is how did you get from that image, that maybe that joyful memory, that food, that experience, that relationship, how do we get from there to here? Because most of our lives, if we're honest right now, at least mine is not full of that kind of joy. I was thinking this week just how much of a struggle it is for me to be joyful. Like my kids are like laughing and I'm just like shushing them. It's like, stop being joyful. It's very easy to be cynical and despairing. How do we get from there to here, to where we are now? And how do we get back to a deeper joy, one that's not naive, but one that's full of hope, despite the brokenness in our lives. We live in a, in a culture of despair, and this is the juxtaposition I just want to make today, is that there's this invitation to joy in the Bible, what Peter calls an inexpressible joy, in the midst of a, a culture of despair. 
What I mean by despair um, is, is just simply this, dictionary definition of despair, the complete loss or the absence of hope. We live in a time when it's hard to find hope. And as I reflect on, I mean, there's lots of reasons why we, we despair. There's lots of reasons why we, we don't live with a hopefulness. And I'm talking to both the Christian and the non-Christian here. There are two primary thieves that, in my experience, both in pastoring and in my own life and in just reading our cultural moment, that rob us of joy and tempt us to despair. One is, um, I think, just frustrated desire and unmet expectations, right? We, we emerge from childhood with this innate sense of joy and, and, and we move into adolescence. Again, if everything's healthy, everything's on track with a sense of angst, to, as one author says, make love with the world. Like we wanna experience everything. We have this energy about us. We, we think that life is gonna be amazing and grand and noble. And there's all kinds of possibilities in front of us. We have these deep desires for life, for pleasure. We have sexual desires that long to be fulfilled. We have desires for intimacy and relationship with other people. We long for a sense of identity and answering that question, who am I? What's my life about? For meaning, we long for justice in the world, for the world to be made right. I mean, one of the key characteristics of young people is they still believe there's the possibility of a world made right. And somewhere along the way, we begin to confuse joy with the pursuit of happiness and pleasure. And in our cultural moment, in a secular age, that kind of manifests as pursuing that apart from God. Now, hear me, desire's not bad, right? Desire, is the, it's the straw that stirs the drink of our lives. If you don't have desire, you have despair. Matter of fact, we were created with these God-shaped desires. Like all these desires that I just mentioned are actually given to us by God because we're created in his image. But what happens in the world around us is particularly in America as we live in a very consumeristic society, right? A consumeristic society that's oriented around stimulating like endless desires, this is kind of, if you're in marketing or advertising, like this is your world. How can I stimulate endless desires and then sell people products that meet those desires? So there's this artificial stimulation and manufacturing. And if we're honest, even exploiting. One author calls it the fracking of the American mind. This exploiting of desire. And, and taking what's already in us, our, kind of our, our sinful desire, right? The, the essence of sinful desire is just disordered desire. It's wanting good things for the wrong reasons or in the wrong proportion. That's the idea of desire in the New Testament, lust. It's not desire, it's disordered desire. It's misdirected desire. It's trying to, to meet those desires, legitimate desires, in illegitimate ways. That's the definition of idolatry in the New Testament. And what happens, the Bible says, is we get enslaved to those desires. We get enslaved to our passions and our pleasures. And we get caught up in this perpetual cycle, I don't know if you notice this about yourself, of longing but never being fulfilled. Temporary satisfaction, what the Bible calls the fleeting pleasures of sin, never satisfied, never fulfilled. And so there's this refrain that I hear a lot. It's like, I have everything I'm supposed to need. I'm 25, educated, 30, and I've got a job, I've got money, I've got a house, whatever. I'm married, I have kids. But why am I so miserable? David Foster Wallace, uh, who is just a little bit older than me, so this is not just like a, this is a multi-generational issue. He would have been 50-ish if he was still alive. 
he wrote about this and he said, an enormous part of my generation, talking about Gen Xers, and the generation right after mine, talking about millennials, is extremely sad. Which when you think about the material comforts and the political freedoms we enjoy is just strange. So we have these desires that are just so frustrated, unmet expectations, longings that never seem to be fulfilled. And the result is this this low-grade sense of guilt and shame and restlessness and boredom and burnout and envy and disillusionment and just basic unmet expectations. Carl Rahner, the theologian, put it like this. He says, in the torment of everything attainable, we come to understand that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. And at some point we come to that place, maybe in our late 20s or early 30s, maybe it's in our 40s. This kind of happens over and over again in ways and cycles as you get older. That beauty is not beautiful enough. Love isn't deep enough. Our relationships just don't satisfy. We look around and we're like, I'm married, but I don't even know if I like this person. I have these kids and I thought that was going to do it, but it, it really didn't. I have this job and it didn't seem to be what I thought it was going to be. I live in this city. I mean, I live in Naptown. You know, like I thought I would be living in somewhere interesting like New York City or Paris or Amsterdam. And here I am stuck in mediocre Indianapolis. These are not my words. These are your words. I've returned home because I just didn't have any better options. The city seems too small and inadequate to feel this, this void of desire. I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but it's just this sense of restlessness. The other thing that I see that robs us of joy on a pretty regular basis is one that I don't think we talk about enough or acknowledge enough, especially in the church, but it's trauma. Trauma and suffering rob us of joy. They rob us of the life that God intended for us to live because we we get paralyzed by overwhelming pain. Sacha Boyak, who's a therapist, wrote an article that went viral that described the experiences of so many, uh, she was talking about millennials and, and the trauma that we experience here living in America. And I thought this was so relevant. I, I feel like I had this conversation on a regular basis with people. So I, I thought I'd quote it here, what she says. She says, despite the apathetic and entitled labels so often hurled at 20-somethings, this is a generation fully aware of the suffering of others all over the world. They're so steeped in it, it's more apt to say they don't know anything else traumatized and numb, maybe, unaware of anything else, perhaps, but this generation is not apathetic. 20-somethings often battle mightily with the discomfort and confusion of life while rolling their eyes at their own, quote-unquote, first-world problems. They can't reconcile their own dis-ease with the fact that others are less fortunate than they are, so they shove the confusion and sadness away. When it shows up again, they distract themselves or they drink. They often only arrive at therapy after a series of physical ailments, the emotion has to go somewhere, or professional and social catastrophes bring them to their knees. Their spirits are often buried under years of sediment, defenses and false selves used to guard against the expectations, judgments, and condescension from peers, parents, bosses, and even articles on unflattering characteristics of the millennial generation. We've lived so much trauma Some of us have been abused. Some of us have lost loved ones. We've all experienced, in a sense, a collective trauma as we lived through the last year of a global pandemic, racial injustices, and just illness, sickness, death, 
The Bible talks about this a lot. Like Exodus talks about the Israelites groaning under the weight of oppression and violence of Pharaoh. It says they were crushed in spirit and it led them to cry out to God in their despair. The psalmist talks about being wounded in his heart and his soul because there's so much opposition coming up against him. We carry around these wounds. Some are wounds of assault where others have done things to us. Some are wounds of neglect where people didn't give us the love. They didn't give us the care, the support that we needed. And yet it's a wound nonetheless. And this suffering, this humiliation, these wounds, this trauma can either soften us and make us deeper and more wise people, or it can harden us and make us bitter people. And it can lead us to places of despair and cynicism. And I even find this sarcasm and mockery. Like how many of us, we spend so much of our lives protecting through sarcasm, protecting through mockery, those tender places. Ronald Rollheiser, in summarizing this kind of culture of despair that we live in, says this, despair is the death of our sense of surprise. The belief that nothing new can happen to us. We despair at the precise moment when consciously or unconsciously we say in resignation, that is the way I am. That is the way things have always been for me. And that is the way it will always be. For me, it's too late. Once this has been said, we're in a tomb. Much of us is dead and more of us is still dying. Why is this kind of despair so dangerous? Because the resurrection is always, as it was the first time, a surprise. The totally unexpected, the impossible, and that which defies all logic, laws of nature, and the wisdom of common sense and convention. When we have every angle of reality so calculated and figured that we know all the possibilities, then nothing new can come along to surprise us. Sadly, our prophecy will be self-fulfilling because we have ceased believing in God and grace in a real sense. We believe it up here, but not in here. We have slimmed down God and grace to fit our own small minds. We live not merely in despair, but also in mediocrity. I mean, is that not the temptation right now to live in mediocrity? to just say, this is, this is all that we can hope for, right? Just a world full of injustice and sin and despair and you know, broken relationships, sickness. And it becomes normalized. And we just resign ourselves to mediocre desires and unmet expectations and hopelessness. How do we move beyond this despair? and recover this sense of childlike joy. Jesus says, if you wanna enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. Notice he doesn't say you must become childish with that initial naivete, but he, he's inviting us to see there's a second naivete. There's a, a deepening of reality where we can actually experience real joy that's, that's somewhat of a second naivete that's full of understanding all the brokenness of the world and yet finds joy in our suffering and in our pain and in our trauma and in our frustrated desires. That's what joy is. The joy that God offers us is a deep joy. It's something that overwhelms sorrow. So the opposite of, of joy is not sorrow, actually. The opposite of joy is despair. And so the Spirit of God invites us out of that despair and into joy. What is joy? The fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit's at work in our lives, Paul says, we experience an inevitable joy. This word joy um, is the Greek word kara. It comes from the same root as the word charis, which is the word for grace. It's the word from which we get words like charisms or the spiritual gifts, charisma, 
charismatic. To be charismatic is to be full of joy, according to the Bible, lowercase c. Let me give you a couple of my favorite definitions of, of Christian joy. Joy, Dallas Willard says, is not a passing sensation of pleasure, but a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. It is pervasive. It is something that burrows itself into the core of our beating and explodes out into how we live our lives. John Piper says it like this, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. It's a good feeling. Deep inside of us, produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word, the scriptures, and in the world. It is a vision of the beauty of Jesus that the Spirit of God puts inside of us by revelation, right? This is not something we manufacture. This is not something we can generate. But it is a good feeling inside of us. It's, it's not less than an emotion, but it's so much more. It touches our desires. It touches our identities. It touches our longings. It does something to us. It grabs hold of us and possesses us. That's what it's like to experience joy. It literally pounces on you so unexpectedly. To know Jesus is to know joy. That's what Paul's saying to us. And what's crazy about the life of Jesus, I don't know what your image of God is. I don't know what kind of tradition you grew up in, but oftentimes we think of God as some kind of uh, cosmic like police officer, you know, who's keeping score and looking to, you know, like abuse and arrest and harass people. We, we think of God as some kind of, uh, disappointed like father or stepfather figure. But that's not the image that Jesus gives us of the father, of the life of God. Jesus from his conception to his ascension back to the father possessed an infectious joy. Like Jesus would have been a person you, would, you wanted to be around. Which is incredible if you think about Jesus's life circumstances. Think about the social backdrop of his life. Roman occupation of his country, heavy taxation, oppression, violence, injustice, sickness, demon possession, poverty. Jesus experienced trauma. He experienced frustrated desires. And yet he was so joyful. Matter of fact, one of the accusations of Jesus by the religious people, they didn't like his joy because it implicated their despair. One of the things they're always accusing him of was being a drunkard and being a glutton. He eats too much and he drinks too much. This is Jesus. I've never been accused of that. Maybe I, something's wrong, probably wrong with me. I mean, think about Jesus's life. Luke chapter one and two, the angels show up to shepherds and they, they make this announcement about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They say, we have good news of what? Great Sadness, great sorrow. No, we have good news of great joy. A savior is going to be born this day. He is Christ the Lord. He is all of the hopes and longings, desires of Israel born into human flesh. The fullness of grace and truth is here. They say rejoice. Elizabeth, Jesus's uh, cousin John, when she shows up to see Mary the first time, they're both pregnant. Mary with Jesus, Elizabeth with John. What's, what happens to John in the womb? He leaps for joy because of the presence of Jesus. Matthew chapter three, when Jesus is baptized, 
the Father speaks over him. The Holy Spirit comes out of heaven and the Father speaks over the Son and he says, this is my Son in whom I delight, in whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus had done anything else, before he'd healed a person, preached a sermon, done anything at all, the first words are words of joy spoken over him by his Father that become the anchor for his life and ministry in the world. Jesus knew that he was the beloved of the Father. He knew that God took joy in him. Interestingly, Jesus' first miracle, John chapter two, the first of his seven signs in the book of John. Anybody remember what it is? A wedding, the most joyous occasion. He goes to a wedding, doesn't heal anybody, doesn't preach a sermon. What's he do? He just simply turns water into wine because the wine ran out, like a, you know, a problem, a very human problem. What was Jesus doing there? That was not just meeting the need of the moment in terms of thirst. Wine in the Bible is a sign for what? According to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's a sign of abundance. It's a sign of joy. It's a sign of, of, of love. It's a sign of the new creation that's breaking into the world. Jesus picks up on this theme of joy and he says, I've come to bring abundant joy into the world. Now drink. Everywhere Jesus went, he was demonstrating this healing, this wholeness. And the response as people were around Jesus was joy. He healed people and there's great joy and amazement and praising of God. Luke 15, when, when people are converted to faith in Jesus, there's, it says when people are converted, there's great joy in heaven as the angels sing and they celebrate because God is a God of joy and he wants people to experience and be invited into that joy. John 16, but when Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he spends three chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, talking to his disciples about his leaving and the sorrow that's gonna create, but yet the joy that's coming to them that cannot be taken away. Jesus says, though you're gonna experience sorrow, I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is gonna give you a joy that's so full that it will overwhelm your sorrows. He, he compares it to pregnancy, right? There's the pain, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm in dangerous territory here but I know there's lots of pain. I got four, but I know that the first moment that baby is placed into mama's arms, there is so much rejoicing. And that rejoicing overwhelms the sorrow. It doesn't make it not real, but it just says it's not the last word. And that's what Jesus is comparing joy to. Joy overwhelms sorrow, it's permanent and it's deep. And that's what distinguishes Christian joy, by the way, from happiness or the pursuit of pleasure. It's not based on circumstances. It's not something that can be taken from you when you lose your job or when you lose your spouse or when you lose a loved one or when you experience trauma, this joy cannot be taken from you. It doesn't vary with circumstances. Acts chapter two, when the spirit comes and is poured out on the community, what happens? Everybody thinks they're drunk because they're so full of joy. This is one of the primary marks of the New Testament community. They were full of joy, Acts 13, 52. I mean, this should be like our life verse as a church. And the disciples, the apprentices of Jesus were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. To be full of the Spirit is to be full of joy. To be full of joy is to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus. 
So if you wanna experience joy, you gotta get close to Jesus. If you're not experiencing joy, you should ask the question, am I really walking close to Jesus? Because you can't be around Jesus according to what we see in the gospels, according to what we hear in the apostle Paul and not experience some kind of radical reorienting of your heart and your inner life that makes you a person of joy. And by person of joy, I'm not talking about the fake, happy, clappy Christian stuff that we talk about, where it's like, how are you doing? Great, God's so good, while internally we're brimming with anger and resentment. I'm talking about deep joy. It doesn't just plaster a forced fake smile that can lament and yet say, yet I rejoice. C.S. Lewis, in his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's the scene as they're about to fight the battle with uh, the white witch. And he goes to the white witch's castle. And remember, everybody's turned to stone. Essentially, everybody's caught in the despair of the white witch, and they're literally turned to stone. And remember, Aslan goes, and he, and he breathes his breath, which the breath in the Bible, the word for Holy Spirit is the same word for breath. He breathes his breath on the marble statues, And what happens? They come to life. And here's what he says about, here's what what C.S. Lewis says about Aslan breathing on them. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you wanna get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you wanna be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And if you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. How do we live as a community of joy? What does it look like to enter into the joy that Jesus promised Like I want us, I want myself to be a a people so marked by inexpressible joy that we are a compelling alternative for a culture that is enslaved in unfulfilled pursuits of pleasure and overwhelmed by pain and trauma and hurt. Joy should enable us to have a different kind of response to live different kinds of lives. Not that we don't experience trauma, not that if you come to Jesus, you don't experience pain but that doesn't define you. We can respond differently because of the joy that's gripped our hearts and and saturated our imaginations. First Peter one, Peter writing to a traumatized community in the Roman empire says this, praise the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him though you've not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. People who knew 
fiery trials. They were getting lit on fire with pitch, thrown to lions, devastated economically, losing their children. And yet they could say, we have this inexpressible joy. I love the way that Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 6. We are, he's talking about his life as an apostle. Struck down, we are beaten, flogged, persecuted, accused, right? We've been through all of these things, bitten by snakes. And Paul can say, we are grieving, yet always rejoicing. What does it look like? Like some of us, we major in the grieving, right? We are rejoicing, but always grieving, right? We, we've learned how to make a virtue out of our despair, right? Because this is not natural to live joyful in the midst of brokenness and suffering and injustice and idolatry. And yet the Bible says we can live this way. This is the way of Jesus. It is a way of joy. So how do we cultivate that joy practically? What does that look like? I'll just give you a couple things as we begin to turn the corner here. Hebrews 12, I know of no better place where the Bible actually shows us what anchored Jesus in the midst of all of the injustice and the shame and the humiliation that went with his vocations calling to the cross Then Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 says this, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the source or the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. What an amazing verse. Like there's so much we could dig into here. The endurance that's required, like joy is something we have to fight for. And it is excruciating, literally for Jesus, excruciating out of the cross, out of the crucifix. It is excruciating to fight for joy. It is a long, long, long road full of all kinds of valleys of despair. But I just want you to notice just one thing. Jesus sets before him joy, right? Joy is something we must set before us as a vision for our lives. It must be the controlling vision of our lives. And, and the joy that Jesus sets before himself, what is, what is the joy that he sets before him? What is that joy? The joy that Jesus sets before him is just simply this. It is the future anticipation of bringing us, his redeemed people, into the delight and the joy of his relationship with his heavenly father through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the anticipation of us sharing in the joy that he has had with his father since the beginning of the world and beginning to live out that joy now. So Jesus has a joy with the father, right? God's presence is the fullness of joy. Jesus knew that joy. He came from that joy. He lived in that joy. He died in that joy. He rose from that joy. One day he's gonna bring that joy into the present. But Jesus also located his joy in us, his community of faith. Isaiah 52 and 53, one of those kind of iconic Good Friday passages where it talks about the suffering of Jesus 
And a lot of us get into the suffering of Jesus and, and it's beautiful, right? It's, it's Good Friday. But we often miss in Isaiah 52 and 53 that bookending the sufferings of Jesus are chapters and verses about joy. Right before in chapter 52, it says his people, the watchmen watching for the coming of the Lord, they will sing for joy. And then at the end, after, after he suffers in 53, it says, um, we will be his portion and he will see his portion, his treasure, and he will be satisfied. Jesus is gonna be satisfied in us, his redeemed people, coming into a relationship of joy with his father. Now here's what that means for us. Jesus sees a future for us that becomes a motivation for how he lays down his life for us. Jesus set joy before him, the joy of his father and the joy of his redeemed people in front of him as he lived his life. To set something before yourself is to fix your attention on it. It's to anticipate something, to pay attention to something, to have a vision for something. Joy is the byproduct of setting before us what's good and beautiful and true. Despair comes when we get distracted, Hebrews says. We stop having that vision for God and for one another. Viktor Frankl, who was a prisoner in the Auschwitz camps, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He went on later to actually pioneer a form of therapy called logotherapy. And he said, the one thing you notice in the concentration camps and all the despair, all the violence, all the death, all the depression, the anxiety, the one difference between those who survived Auschwitz and those who didn't was that those who survived kept their vision focused on hope. They were those who could grab a hold of a future vision of hope and bring it into the present. So what, what are we setting before ourselves as we live out our calling in the world as the beloved children of the Father? We should be setting two things before ourselves quickly. We should be setting the joy of the Father's presence before our hearts on a regular basis. In your presence is fullness of joy. In God's presence is fullness of joy. Do we set that before ourselves regularly enough? I know that I don't, right? Do I set the reality of what God's done for me in the gospel, the good news of great joy? If you wanna kind of like rev up your imagination and get that into your heart, I wanna encourage you, like go to Ephesians chapter one this week. Go to Ephesians chapter one. You have been chosen by God. You have an inheritance in God. You have been redeemed by Jesus. The spirit of God has sealed you. You have every blessing in heaven that's being poured out into your life, been made alive with God in Christ. Meditate on that. Let that fill your imagination. Zephaniah 3 says, God takes delight in his people and he sings over us. It's kind of weird. Like God is hovering over us and delighting and dancing and singing and celebrating because we are his treasure. That's crazy good news. And even though I think many of us believe this up here intellectually, we don't believe it here. We don't believe it in our hearts. We, don't, we struggle to enter into the fullness of it. It's like too good to be true. This only happens by the power of the Spirit. Romans 14 and 15, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
And then he prays, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, fill you with all peace as you believe in him so that you can overflow with hope by the power of the spirit. This is not something you can manufacture. We have to pray that God would fill us with his spirit and that joy would be the result of that in our hearts that then flows out into our relationships. We've got to meditate on that, friends. We've got to think about that. We've got to get that into our imagination so that it overwhelms our sorrows. It overwhelms our pain. It becomes more desirable to us than anything else in the world. Like one simple practice that I found to be helpful for myself in COVID, because COVID, man, will just rob your joy. It's just to wake up each day and spend a couple of minutes in gratitude. Take a couple of minutes and just say, I mean, this is all through the Psalms. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for your salvation. Thank you for health. Thank you for life. Thank you for my family. I mean, it sounds so simple, but how often do we spend the waking moments of our day and the closing moments of our day and most of in between, not rehearsing the goodness of God, but rehearsing our grievances against God? Nurturing our pain, nurturing our unfulfilled longings and desires, shaking our fists at God and at the world and at everyone around us. So we've got to get this into our bodies. Gratitude can do that. Confession of sin does that. Repentance does that, right? Restore to me the joy of my salvation, David says, after confessing his sin. Singing can do that. Dancing can do that. Clapping can do that. Spirit-filled worship ought to be doing that. That's why we sing. That's why we dance. That's why we clap. That's why we should be doing these things. It's to teach our bodies joy because our bodies are being taught all day long to despair. So we set the joy of God's presence before us and then we set the joy of God's people before us. We remember that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses and that one of our primary jobs as the church is to help each other fight for joy. I need you to help me fight for joy. You need me to help you fight for joy. Parents need their children to help them fight for joy. Children need their parents to help them fight for joy. We need grandparents helping us fight for joy. White people need black people and brown people helping them fight for joy and vice versa. The poor need other people helping them fight for joy. And we need the poor to help us fight for joy. It takes a community, a cloud of witnesses, past, present, and future to hold on to the vision of joy that God has for us, to allow that future vision of joy to shape how we actually treat each other right now in the present. Because we often don't treat each other as if this future promise of Jesus that we are going to be made whole, that because of the cross and and the resurrection of Jesus, we are being made new. We just don't live that way. We don't talk to each other that way. We don't imagine each other that way. It's easy to get cynical and despairing towards one another. And that the joy that Paul's talking about in Galatians, it's it's mostly an interpersonal joy. That's the context for Galatians. Don't fight with each other. Stop biting and devouring. Stop exploiting and hitting literally one another and bear the fruit of joy in your relationships. If Jesus delights in us, despite knowing our worst, What does that say about our invitation to learn to delight in each other? Can you say that church is a place where you come genuinely excited about delighting in your brothers and sisters? Or 
Is it a place where you go, oh, I gotta see them again? Are you serious? I've gotta show up again, this person? I don't like this person. They annoy me. They frustrate me. They hurt me. I don't wanna be full of joy. I don't have a vision for them other than maybe bad things happening to them. We must have a future vision of each other's wholeness that controls how we treat each other in the present. There's all kinds of things that I could say here, like important practices that, we, that get us into that. Confessing our sins to one another is really important. Forgiving one another protects us from bitterness. Confessing our sins, James says, heals us in our relationships. He's talking about each other. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed from bitterness, from fear, from shame, from guilt. Gratitude, right? Just as we're grateful to God for his grace, do we practice gratitude with one another? Hey man, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your presence in this community. I mean, how often do we say that to the people closest to us, our spouses, our kids? Again, we nurse our grievances against one another more than we rehearse what we're grateful for. And that was one of the most astounding things reading through the New Testament is how Paul talks about other believers. You are my beloved you are my joy. You don't think those people were annoying? Paul writes later, they've all abandoned me. And yet, despite the fact that they mistreated him, he could say, you're my joy and my crown. He speaks with what you might call eschatological language. Like this is where we're going. Now I'm gonna talk to you and I'm gonna treat you as if this is true right now. We could talk about acts of healing and, and prayer and prophecy and how those lead to joy in our relationships with each other. We could talk about feasting. One of the primary ways that they rehearsed joy in the Old Testament was through a cycle of feasts. And man, in a season where we've been depressed and despairing and lonely and isolated, I can think of nothing more important than Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And how do they practice that joy? He says to them, go your way. After they're brought back from exile, they're brought back from a season of trauma. He says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. That, that means in, in Deuteronomy, that means the poor, that means the refugee, that means the immigrant, that means the other, right? Those outside of privilege and wealth. He says, invite them in so that it's a just feast for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is what we celebrate each week as we come to feast with Jesus. That is what communion is all about. It's a feast. We come as God's people to gather around the wine, the, the abundance, the joy of God's kingdom. And we share that with one another across barriers, across racial, ethnic, uh, financial barriers. We invite people to come and to taste and to see God's goodness, his joy. And we, we're reminded that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that's what we're gonna do here together as we close. It's just pray that God would fill us with his joy. As we come and we confess our sins, as we cry out to him to do the impossible, to fill us with inexpressible joy. We take the body of Jesus and we take the blood of Jesus and we say, God, would you do it again? God, I am feeling despairing. I am feeling lonely. I am feeling hopeless, but I'm gonna cling to this bread. I'm gonna cling to your body. I'm gonna cling to this blood, your blood shed for me to make me whole. So I wanna invite you into just a moment of silent confession as we prepare to receive communion together. If you're watching online, you can get, go ahead and get your communion elements. And I wanna invite you just to, 
to search your heart, to ask the honest question, am I filled with joy? The kingdom of God is joy, Paul says. Am I filled with that joy? And if not, then what is God's invitation to me? Maybe it's for you to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've gone to church and you've been religious and you've been moral, but, but it's, a, it's a cold moralism. It's not filled with the joy that the spirit came to give because you're not really walking with Jesus. You're just doing religious stuff. That will not give you joy, friends. Maybe you've got sin in your life that needs to be confessed and turned away from. Maybe you've got broken relationships that need to be dealt with that are keeping you from experiencing joy. Joy is inevitable in the life of a Christian. The question is, what is blocking that joy from exploding out into our lives?